is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College and the City University of New York. Today we talk about communicating the limits of our knowledge. My co-panelists are Gabriel Rossman from UCLA, Pat Riley from the University of California, Irving, and Daniel Lorison from Swarthmore University. Our discussion was recorded on February 27th, 2019. So recently I read two news pieces that had me thinking about sort of the public communication of scientific findings. So first, did you guys see that story that was circulating through the media a few days ago about screen time and child well-being? It's like it's a story in the Times, and I think I circulated one from Vox. Yeah, I, I'd read that. Yeah, but I don't remember, and most of the listeners probably haven't heard it by the time it will have been 10 days later. So why don't you just synopsize totally. it? Totally. So, like, if you're a parent, there's no doubt that, like, you've heard word about, like, the negative effects of screen time and mobile electronics, particularly with regard to mental health. And, uh, the, uh, basically, the argument from these uh, pieces is that our understanding of what the data say and uh, the kind of data that we're talking about are two different things. So like a lot of these screen time studies are based on measurements of total time facing a screen, right? Uh, and that, that they don't know if the kids are watching pornography or shooting at each other or doing research on Wikipedia, uh, you know, or, or, or FaceTiming with their friends on summer camp. And there's like a, a, a measurement uncertainty that induces, it, it, it injects this literature with a, a messiness is how it's described, such that like it's really hard to say whether or not like what the student, what the what young people are doing on, on, on screens is really causing them any damage. Like there's gross associations and we don't know how. We're dealing with very crude measurements. And. I saw a similar article that made me think about the same thing. It was uh, circulating. I saw it in Quillette uh, through, you know, that email that the Heterodox Academy sends out on motivated reasoning and science. And basically, this is a, another story about how the American Psychological Association and other professional psychology organizations are putting out public notice about the damaging effects of spanking. Like, I, I don't spank my children. I don't really think it's a very effective parenting strategy. It's not going to resolve conflict. But, like, the person who wrote it is arguing that, like, the literature is inconclusive. And yet there's been stories of people who've been arrested for spanking their children because there's a widespread view that psychology has deemed this stuff to be damaging to children. Right? So there's, like, two... Yeah, fortunately, this is the kind of thing that could only happen at APA. The <laughs> ASA would never... Uh, issue um, some type of official, uh, you know, <laughs> statement ex cathedra that uh, reflected the consensus among its members in their personal lives, but didn't actually reflect a strong scientific consensus and sociological research. That, that that's the kind of thing that psychologists have to deal with, but a sociologist never. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but like seriously, it look, it's a problem in the social science business, right? And I get it. Like there are journalists who want to write stories. And, uh, you know, you have a regression analysis, a paper with a regression where you had some type of proxy for the effect. And, you know, there's measurement problems and, you know, like it's not slam dunk evidence, but you trot it out to the journalist and the journalist reported as fact. And then people make like real world decisions based on an understanding of what scientific consensus says is, you know, the truth and what the 
uh, evidence actually says. And, and, and I've been thinking about, are we as a discipline failing to communicate the uncertainty or the limits of our knowledge? I, I think you're conflating two separate issues, right? So, so one issue is I write a paper, my university puts out a press release Mm-hmm. That makes it sound much more certain, you know, authors available for comment, but we're not even going to have a link to the paper right. because we know you're not going to read it anyway, all that sort of stuff. That That's one way that you have kind of the uh, public diffusion of scientific knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another way where the journalist has a story they want to write, but they know that they can't just say, you know, here's an idea I pulled out of my ass. They need someone with an official sounding title, like, you know, according to Professor Joseph N. Cohen of Community uh, College of U- University. What is it? <laughs> University of New York. <laughs> you know, um, it's like that Garth Marenghi dark place joke where uh, the yeah. person was going for the job interview and she was like, "Yeah, I'm fully educated. I went to Harvard College, Yale." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so you know, the, the second one is that the the journalist has an idea and they you know they write quote TK in the middle. And then they, you know, call a publicist and say, do you have any professors who are willing to give me a quote that reflects right. my own ideas back to me? And then this third is the, you know, like the APA statement and many, many very similar ASA statements, um, the most infamous of which is the Iraq War statement. Um, Can you remind us what that was? Yeah. So back in times of yore, uh, when uh, all three of us were in grad school, and I believe Daniel hadn't started grad school, even though he's our age. Um <laughs> Yeah. So like, twas the aughts, children. Yeah, that's right. You gather around and I'll tell you about the Bush Cheney administration. So, um, you know, there was this the lead up to the Iraq war. And this was a very unpopular, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, a bit of adventurism among sociologists. Um, you know, but and so there was a petition from the membership to uh, have an official ASA statement opposing the Iraq war. Mm hmm. And the council at the time actually opposed it, uh, not because they favored the war, but because they figured it was none of the ASA's business and we didn't have you know, any distinctive scientific appeal, uh, expertise and we should really stay out of it. And if individual people want to you know, say things that reflect either their personal opinions or their expertise, that's great. But the ASA is a disciplinary body, is a uh, professional society, mm. not um, an all-purpose pundit. Mm. And so they tried to sabotage it by adding a third – they, they couldn't refuse to put on the ballot because uh, the bylaws said that if you get a certain number of signatures, you can put anything on the ballot. Mm. Um, but they added a third option basically saying, well, I don't like the war, but um, I think the ASA should stay out of it. Mm-hmm. But none was, notwithstanding, you know, them, you know, allowing you to say that you personally dislike the war, but, you know, you wanted to uh, – have certain boundaries to the scope of the ASA. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the the hard version of the motion of you know I oppose the war and I want the ASA to officially oppose it uh, passed with the majority of the membership. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you you saw a long string of every few months ASA council would um, issue a statement just as ASA council right. So they initially opposed it, and then uh, very shortly after that. Um, ASA counsel just started saying like, oh, there's a Supreme Court case. Let's file an Amica courier. Oh, here's something in the news. Let's do it. And they became almost like a YouTube commenter. Mm. So, you know, but what these things have in common is that in the vast majority of the cases, they don't reflect areas where we have a strong scientific consensus. Mm. They reflect areas where the overwhelming majority of um, sociologists feel a particular way in their personal lives. 
Hmm. And, you know, a lot of them were basically like, you know, should NPR member stations continue to give out tote bags and you remember, hmm. you know, donate to the pledge drive, <laughs> right? Which is something that, you know, most sociologists have personal experience with and, you know, enjoy their tote bags, but it has nothing to do with being a sociologist per se, uh-huh. you know. And, you know, even if there is some literature on, you know, gift premiums for nonprofit fundraising or externalities to public broadcasting, it's not like, you know, that's like a major area of inquiry. And so in in many cases, even if it was, the literature would be mixed. But, you know, when push comes to shove of normative commitments of a a supermajority of sociologists versus, um, you know, how strong of a scientific consensus and or expertise do we have? it would typically go with the latter. And the Iraq war resolution was a great example of that. The vast majority of sociologists have no special expertise in foreign policy or international relations. I certainly don't. I mean, in that sense, the spanking thing from the APA is a little bit, at least as I read the um, the article about it, is a little bit of a um, more defensible position. Presumably, most members of the APA have some uh, expertise that relates to spanking, even if they don't have the, um, the you know, the research consensus in what's published in the research, um, which doesn't mean I think that uh, professional organizations ought to pre- ought to make statements on all political issues, but um, there's a little more grounds for that than for some of the things you're talking about. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I – it's kind of a more general sort of thing that I noticed with the kind of presentation of uh, scientific research in journalistic articles. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where – because of the limited space and because you can kind of take, you know, going to some of the points that Gabe was talking about, I mean, you could take, when you are presenting this within a journalistic article, right, there isn't a space for nuance or there isn't a space for under these conditions. I mean, usually the presentation is some degree of certainty. You know, one of the things that's kind of interesting with the spanking, uh, you know, statement that was made that, that you had forwarded to us. I mean, this was written by a guy who, uh, a psychologist, who studied violent video games, right? That that was kind of one of his big studies is the effects of violent video games. And, you know, that being at a time in which, I mean, in my generation, you know, all the evils of the world were created by video games like Doom and listening to Ramstein, which, you know, you could say that listening to Ramstein is negative in certain levels, but, you know, there's a certain aspect where, you know, when you talk about these particular uh, sort of effects or you describe these effects to these events, you know, there is this sort of thing where, you know, and he brings up in this article, like, you know, the playing of violent video games, you know, in his research, you know, people play violent video games, but the effect is is in other factors that um, are more drivers having to deal with, you know, individual personality traits or, you know, uh, other sort of pathological things or more social factors. But, you know, because there is this sort of thing where you look at the abstract or you look how it's presented maybe in a press release and there isn't this space to say, okay, this is causality or this is correlation, you know, in the presentation of these articles, uh, typically, or, you know, the way in which people will bring up these sorts of things in, in discourse, they know there isn't that space for it, right? So, I mean, I, I can remember being a kid and hearing Fritz Halling talking about how Beaver and Buffcoat should be taken off of MTV, uh, because it makes kids burn down their houses because Beavis mm-hmm. played with, with matches. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things where I think that, you know, part of it is how the presentation happens within the, uh, you know, the, some of the, the things with professional organizations, but even in the kind of 
reporting or kind of sharing of this sort of information in these sorts of studies, I mean, you know, the way in which it's presented uh, to the general public doesn't have necessarily the necessary degree of nuance or the necessary degree of, you know, causality versus correlation that, you know, is necessary to really kind of understand the stuff that people are talking about. And also the effect sizes thing, too, that he mentions where, you know, they're, you know, uh, small effect sizes versus large effect sizes. They say, oh, it has a negative effect. It's not a thing of, you know, well, let's get into what the beta coefficient right. is. It's, you know, something where it's like there's a negative effect and, you know, and then it kind of gets brought out whenever there are these big stories. You know, with the Spanky one, I remember it was brought out when Adrian Peterson, the running back for, you know, at the time, the uh, Minnesota Vikings had gotten arrested for hitting his uh, son with a switch. Uh, to discipline them. And, you know, it's one of these sorts of things where, you know, it's interesting how these sorts of things get kind of carried out and reported in the media and used. But, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. Uh, Gabriel probably has more of a connection to it now because of the fact that everybody's asking him for the inside scoop on who's going to win the uh, uh, Oscars so they can, you know, report it or go on, uh, you know, uh, whatever betting websites there is and get the inside track. Yeah, but that's not, like, contentious. You know, nobody, you know, things like spanking or, you know, the various things that the ASA chimes in on it's like you know you feel like you're denying people rights or you're upending civilization or something like that if um you have the wrong opinion on it whereas nobody ultimately really gives a shit if green book's going to win an oscar so you know the the kind of media requests i get don't have that aspect well let me ask you guys a question though right imagine you're 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 doing spanking research and you you know you find some broad association with sort of a marginally significant effect and like, uh, you know, moderate size. And you just don't feel like it's a, you know, that you're not making a strong case for the argument. Your evidence is quote suggestive unquote. And then someone writes a piece that makes it sound like you have just arrived at determinative, you know, definitive results. Do you have a professional responsibility to go on Twitter and communicate the weakness of your results like tell the public i think i think even before that what you have a responsibility to do is back down the publicist what do you mean right it's very rare that you know the ideologues or the clickbait authors or whomever are you know flipping through google scholar hmm. looking for citations themselves the, the way this stuff gets into public consciousness is a publicist from your university or the journal or ASA or whatever writes up a press release, makes it sound like, you know, and they don't want to emphasize that spanking changes child outcomes by, you know, a tenth of a standard deviation. Yeah. And that's only with one specification. And with the other specification, it's a 20th of a standard deviation, but it's in the opposite direction. Mm. You know, they, they just want to say spanking ruins kids. Right. You know, and and so it's your responsibility as an author to be willing to walk, because ultimately, what do you care if the publicist doesn't get a press release out of your work? Right. I mean, I think there's for me, if I've got a result that I feel like is is shaky or small or et cetera, I would question, first of all, publishing it. But second yeah. of all, right, um, <laughs> going to a publicist at all, like I, I wouldn't want 
the rest of you guys to know about my research that I'm not that proud of or sure about or et cetera. I would want that to be, you know, if not in a file drawer, you know, I would never tweet about it. I would never, et cetera. Um, so I think even before the, right, the question is sort of how does the publicist get a hold of something with a small or questionable effect size? Um Unless you're an author who's published something where you, you know, it so strongly confirms your priors that you're ignoring the the fact that the effect sizes are fairly small, or you know, or something like that. But if you're if you're being responsible, hopefully with your own analyses, you already know this is you know this is shaky, and maybe it should be in a journal because it you know I do find something and it's above the level of statistical significance and it could add to the general knowledge or whatever else, but it shouldn't be something that you're you know that goes on the cover of the New York Times. Well, I I, I don't know. I, you're you're kind of conflating effect size and certainty about the finding. And, you know, you can be reasonably certain about a finding and it can still have a small effect size. Right. Because, I mean, honestly, in social science, most things don't matter that much. Right. <laughs> right. But, I mean, I think if it's either, you want to be – you want to be cautious about how you about how you publicize it, et cetera, et cetera. Convey right? the findings. Yeah. I mean, I guess I think, you know, uncertainty of results or, or low statistical significance and um, small effect sizes often go together, not always. Um, and so I think if you've got either, you have a responsibility on, in, in some sense to be cautious in uh, reporting your results, in talking to a publicist, in being willing to to go all out um, with the publicity. I mean, that seems like the sort of thing hopefully we all save for when we have something we really think matters and mm -hmm. is, you know, is substantial as well as significant, as my stats teacher always said. But should we make a positive effort to communicate the limits of what we know and what we found out? Because it's one thing to be like, I'm not going to talk to them. They'll just find somebody else to do it. And I'm wondering, like, is part of the problem that scholars do not take a, uh, a strong role in communicating the limits of what we know? Like, do we have to undercut our authority to more accurately portray, you know, what we have to offer and, and maybe prevent the abuse of, you know, the, the legitimacy we're afforded? I mean, I think that's really tricky because I mean, I, don't know, I have one example of this where I was talking to a journalist who was doing a story around our ASR article about the class ceiling, and he had found some number in there, and he wanted to, you know, he wanted me to confirm that that was exactly the right number. And I kept saying, you know, well, if I do it with logged income, I get this percentage, and if I mm -hmm. do it with the, you know, without logging the income first, I get this other percentage that's a little bit different. And if I do it, you know, with these controls, and he was mm -hmm. like, no, you, you know, you are the you are a researcher, you have a number, you have to be sure. And, and you know, however much I said, that's not how it works. He, he wouldn't <laughs> believe me. Like, he just would not believe me that I couldn't pick a single percentage or a single number and say, this is absolutely, definitely, exactly, precisely, yes. you know, it, you know, it's 16.2%. Yes. It's not 16.8. Like that's, and that's not how, even yes. when you've got, you know, actual things that come in numbers like money like we we had that's yeah. not how research works well it's funny because uh, as an ethnographer i just get people being like tell me some stories yeah. you know so that's kind of <laughs> but it's funny yeah they really want you to be like i guarantee you your child will make twenty one thousand dollars more a year if you sign them up for private school right like, 
I don't know your kid. I don't know what career they're going to be or what the school's about. But twenty-one grand extra for lifetime sounds like a good percentage measure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Anything else or move on? Well, on that kind of thing, I, I remember uh, there was one version of the ASA style guide where it's like avoid saying terms like order of magnitude. Say about ten, and I'm thinking. <laughs> Okay, what fucking humanities major wrote this? Because <laughs> the the nice thing about order of magnitude is it conveys the error the error bars, mm. right? Right. Uh, you know, order of magnitude doesn't mean ten; it means about ten. And right. even if you say about ten, it doesn't convey that uncertainty in the same way that order of magnitude does. And that kind of thing's important to convey that, you know, it's something like that, but we never we'll never know for sure exactly what it is. You know, it's so hard, though. I know in my own field, personal finance, there's a a pretty well-developed body of research that shows that most people lack the basic math skills to do very basic personal financial calculations about their, you know, so like even the concept of variation, I wonder if like a third of society can even grasp it. You know what I mean? Grasp the concept. I mean, I think there's got to be a, I mean, I think there's got to be a way people could generally understand if the journalists were willing to to put it out there. You know, we think that on average, the working class people earn about 16 percent less a year. Like that would be a sentence you could write. Right. right? Um, but but the journalists don't want to write that sentence. Right. They want to say there is a, an effect that is this size. Um, so I don't think it's I mean, some of it is, yeah, people don't get confidence intervals or people don't get what variance is or, or that sort of thing like that. That seems fine. But just the fact that we're uncertain, I think, is sometimes I mean, in is sometimes th- something that, you know, the the press people definitely, you know, the publicists definitely don't want to emphasize the uncertainty and the journalists, in my experience, often don't either. Yeah. Well, the, emphasizing the uncertainty, emphasizing the small effect size, it makes it less newsworthy. Yeah. Right. It, and you can see this most obviously if you don't look at social science, but like somebody made a graph of all the foods that give you cancer or keep you from giving cancer, getting cancer. And what the effect sizes were that were reported. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could have the same food and it would make you five times more likely to get cancer or one fifth as likely to get cancer if you drink coffee or say. Yeah. And it's like there's no way that the same. I mean, first of all, I don't believe any of these, you know, no matter how many antioxidants are in dark chocolate. I don't think it's going to uh, you know, have more than a small effect on um, your odds of getting cancer. That's just wishful thinking. Yeah, and also right. a lot of these things, it turns out that it, like anything that's correlated with an upper middle class lifestyle, um, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, I'm convinced that's the reason that red. I don't think it has anything to do with antioxidants or tannins or whatever. I, I'm convinced that red wine, uh, you know, in moderation is good for you because upper middle class people drink red wine in moderation. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. It, I mean, they might as well put the uh, the interaction term in there that says red wine is good for you only if you have an NPR sticker on your Volvo. <laughs> I mean, to, to be frank, I mean, I, I listened to Marilyn Manson for a short time in middle school, and it didn't make me shoot up my school. It just made me really, really cool. Yeah. So. <laughs> really cool. You've been listening to The Annex, an academic sociology podcast. You can visit our show site at sociocast.org slash annex, 
We are on Twitter at Socianix and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Laseth Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. I'm Joseph Cohen. Thank you for listening. <laughs>